Well, it is great to see everybody. Hello to all of you, wherever you are listening in. And I'm so thankful for the people who are giving leadership in others of our, of our communities and our campus and what have you. So, um, first of all, welcome to those of you in the classic service. And if you're in there, because we do appreciate so much the work that Dave does in giving leadership, would you in classic, would you just say, Way to go, Dave, all right? And if you're on the Moon Campus today listening in, welcome to you. Go, way to go, John, because we're thankful for the leadership that John gives there in Moon. If you're listening online, way to go, Internet, or something, I guess, would be what you might say. If you're here in person, I'm not going to make you say, way to go, Jeff, but we're glad that you are. <laughs> okay, okay. Wow, that was, that was pretty good. Thank you for that. That was way more than I was expecting. Um, but uh, it is just good to be together and uh, good to have the opportunity to open up God's Word, and we're looking forward to what He has to say to us today. Now, it only takes a brief conversation with pretty much anybody today, and what you discover, because we've been locked down for so long, is that people are ready for more. They're ready for more of a lot of things. Maybe they're ready for more opportunity to go to restaurants or more opportunity to go to sporting events. Maybe they are ready for more freedom. We're all ready for more freedom. And certainly ready for more travel as well. All of those things have been restricted. So you just talk to people and it's like you can tell they're ready for more to be sure. There's an airline, Qantas Airlines. They're an Australian airline. They knew that people were ready for more travel and so they came up with this great idea people couldn't leave the country but they could move inside the country and so they came up with this thing called mystery flights and what you would do is you would pay a pretty decent sum of money and you'd go to the airport to the gate and you would get on the airplane that had been chartered but they didn't tell you where you were going you just got on the plane and you flew wherever they were taking you and it wasn't until you were getting ready to land that they told you where you were and then they had some excursions planned, and you enjoyed those, and then you got back on the plane, and you went back home. That's kind of interesting. Mystery flights. I'm kind of wondering, how many of you would go for that kind of thing? All right, that's, that's like lots of you. That's, that's fantastic. Good for you. And a lot of adventurers here today. That's great. Well, if that wasn't enough to convince you that people were ready for more, that wasn't the only promotion they had. They had another one that was called a flight to nowhere. And what you would do is you would go, again, you paid a pretty decent sum of money, you'd go to the gate, you'd get on the plane, they would fly you around the country for eight and a half hours, they'd take you back, and then you'd land at the same airport you had just left from. How many of you would go for that? All right, not, not nearly as many are interested in that, but a lot of people were because that flight sold out in 10 minutes when they offered it. How about that? The fact is that people have been ready for more just to do something, to go somewhere. And it's, not, and it's not just about travel. Maybe you've been seeing the reports also that this year is anticipated to be one of the most selfish years ever. Have you seen that? A lot of people are focused pretty much on their me time and what they might be able to do. And so sales of boats and, and bikes and luxury vehicles are at an all-time high because people are leaning into They're ready for something more, and some of it is, is selfish. Some people are ready for more family. Some people are ready for less family, but some people are ready for more family. And so people, this is a thing that people are quitting jobs and careers, and they're moving across the country to get back to family, wherever the family happens to be. 
And in this sort of environment that we're in in our culture today, the things that are going on all around us that we see, there are people who are also very much ready for more justice and unity and civility and tolerance and kindness and ready for more purpose. And that's a good thing. That's an important thing for us to be sure. And it's right that we would be ready for more because there are a lot of things that are lacking all around us. But the benefit doesn't just come in, in finding something more. It's in finding the right things that provide more. The beneficial things. And this is important to talk about because even though we would have this desire to go after that which is most beneficial, we don't always do it. Sometimes we even know what would be most beneficial and we, we sort of get sidetracked and we go off into this direction and off to that direction. And, and when we come to realize the fact that we've kind of been spinning our wheels or we've gotten distracted and we're not really pursuing the things that are most important, that can lead us back to the place where we're ready for more. More significance. More things that are important. More things that matter, that are of value. Now, the reasons that we get distracted, there are lots of them from the de destinations that we want to go and be. And one of the primary reasons that we get distracted is because what I'm referring to as living by default. All right? We need to talk about this idea of living by default. We're going to get into that and all of the implications that it has, but I thought it might be interesting if we were actually to take a look at it in relationship to some real people in a real situation. And so that's what we're going to do today. The situation that I have in mind happened in a church, another church a long time ago in the city of Corinth. Today we're actually kicking off what is part two of a sermon series that we have been in looking at a particular letter. And the sermon series is called Strength in Weakness, and it's part two that we are getting into as we get renewed into this letter. Now, the fact is that we all experience times and circumstances of weakness where we're not all that we could be or all that we should be, where we're not hitting on all cylinders, whether that would be spiritual in some other realm of our life. But the good news is that we're not stuck there, that there is always hope, that there is always a strength that we can find to assist us in the midst of whatever the weakness is that we might happen to be experiencing or, or feeling. And that's most definitely the case with the people in the situation that we're going to be taking a look at here today. Now, if you were with us for part one of this series, Strength and Weakness, you know that this is a letter that was written by a guy who has just a single name. He's just known by one name. It's Paul, right? Paul is our guy. Now, you know if, if people can just refer to you by one name that you're probably pretty well known and you've probably got or had a good bit of influence. And we see that in our world today, right? There's people like Bono, we refer to him just as one name, we know exactly who we're talking about, or Oprah, or there's Kobe, or Kermit, 
right? <laughs> different people have different sorts of influence, I guess, but uh, just single name. Well, the guy that we're talking about, just one name, most definitely has enormous significance, and he is Paul, of course, that we are talking about. He started as one who was actually opposed to Jesus, opposed to his message, opposed to his followers, and worked very hard against them. But then a circumstance transpires in his life where he comes to put his hope and his trust in Jesus, and everything changes. All of a sudden, now he's preaching the message of the gospel. He's supporting his followers. He is working to take the message around and start churches. And that's what he's doing and uh, having an enormous influence. And then he writes letters to those churches to strengthen them in their faith, to help them where there is error that they might be put back onto the right road, where they might know the direction to go. He's having an enormous influence to be sure. And one of those letters that he writes is the one that we are taking a look at. It's what we call 2 Corinthians, and this part 2 of 2 Corinthians has to do or starts in chapter 10, and uh, so if you want to go ahead and get opened up in a Bible or your, or your app or somewhere where you can kind of follow along these verses, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and the first six verses are what we're taking a look at today. Now, as chapter 10 opens, we can see right away that there's some tension that is going on, because there are some people who have now come into the church, the church that Paul started, that he preached with the message of the gospel, the message of Jesus, and they've come in, and now they're working to discredit Paul. They want to have influence themselves in the church, and so they're trying to discredit him. And Paul's very concerned about this because he knows that if they discredit him, it's just a very short jump to actually discrediting his message, which ultimately is discrediting Jesus. And that's something he's not allowing to happen. Now, if somebody's going to work against him, that's one thing, but as soon as somebody's going to try to drag Jesus through the mud, now Paul's going to stand up and he's going to do something about that. So let's go ahead and take a look at some of what we see here in this text, just as it gets started. Verse 1 of chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians, here's how it starts. It says, By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you, he's writing to the church, and specifically he's targeting some of these false teachers in their midst. He says, I, Paul, who am timid, quote-unquote, when face-to-face with you, but bold, quote-unquote, toward you when away. What's that all about? Well, one of the tactics that these false teachers used was to try to discredit Paul, to assail his character, and to suggest that he was actually kind of two-faced. And that's what this first verse is talking about. Because they said, when, sure, when Paul writes to us, he writes with great boldness. But when he's with us in person, he's nothing. He's weak. He's timid. He's not very impressive at all. And so what he's saying in verse 1 is what's being said about him. He's saying, yeah, you call me bold when I'm not with you, but weak when I am with you. So that's what verse 1 is really talking about there. So Paul gets in their face a little bit about um, what's going on here because he doesn't want them to run roughshod over the truth or certainly not over the church. So he knows he's got to speak up. And this is a marked difference from where this whole letter has started. If you remember kind of the tone of it, it's been pretty conciliatory to this point. Paul demonstrates his thankfulness for them. He actually gives them praise for the way that they've demonstrated their desire to assist other people and help them along the way. And that's how we saw the majority of the church. But these guys are coming in and they're trying to prey on those people in the church. And Paul's like, no, 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 that's not going to happen. 
And so he speaks up and he gets pretty bold with what he has to say. In fact, there's such a marked change between where we find chapter 10 and what follows, and you'll see that as we make our way along. Please be sure to come back so you can see it. What happens from chapter 10 on sounds actually very different from what sounds for what the first nine chapters sound like. So much so that there are people who have suggested that these last chapters in 2 Corinthians really weren't intended to be 2 Corinthians at all. Really that they're a different letter that Paul wrote that he refers to back in chapter 2 and verse 4 as this severe letter that it was found and it was tacked on to the back end of 2 Corinthians. They say that that's what this is because it sounds so different. And it's possible that that's the case, but it's also possible that there are other reasons that it could sound different as it does. One of those might be that, well, there, it's highly unlikely that Paul wrote all of 2 Corinthians in one sitting, and so there's probably some time that's elapsed between chapter 9 and, and chapter 10, and any of a number of things could have happened in that time. One of them is Paul might have gotten some additional news from Corinth. He learned something else about what was going on, so now he's going to speak that much more boldly in what he has to say from this point going forward. That's very much a possibility. It could be that something else has transitioned where Paul is or other circumstances that he's run into or that he's encountered that can kind of change the way that he is processing the circumstances as well. You know that if you're in one setting, you might be inclined to write one way. If you're in another setting, you might be inclined to write a little bit differently or if you have news or new news, that sort of thing. Setting and circumstance can certainly make a difference. That happens in your life and it does in mine. You're probably going to be in a different frame of mind if you're sitting at home in your favorite chair and you're listening to your favorite music on your noise-canceling headphones eating an Orem's donut, then you're going to be, if you're frantically searching for your lost child while your wife put you in charge of that child while she's gone doing something else, hypothetically speaking, right? That is something some of you know. That's something that happened to me. It's going to put you in a very different frame of mind. And why Paul is experiencing or feeling this urgency or this different tone could have come from any of a number of reasons. So it's pretty hard to say exactly what's going on with that or exactly what the circumstance is here. But Paul is very concerned, clearly, for the people of the church and what's going on there. So he goes on in verse 2, if you take a look at it, he says, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people, false teachers, who think that we live by the standards of the world, of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. Now, this is very interesting because Paul's opponents were making accusations against him that were born out of a judgmental spirit. They've got a very narrow mind when it comes to Paul. In fact, they're twisting what would be the truth to try to make him look bad. They say that he's living by the standards of this world or the standards of the flesh when that's actually the very thing that their accusations are. The things that they're accusing Paul of are actually the things that they're doing. Let me give you a few for instances. For instance, they were trying to get people to dismiss Paul because they're saying that God's not with him. Why? Because he was going through so many trials. They said, if God was really with you, you would be having a simpler life. You wouldn't be going through all of these difficult trials that you're going through, which of course is completely bogus, as any of you who have gone through trials could testify to. That, that doesn't mean that God's not with you. He meets you in the midst of it and assists you through it. 
They were wanting to dismiss Paul because he didn't have a lot of money. And so when he came into a town, he would actually set up shop and he would make tents and he would do this manual labor. And they're like, well, you shouldn't be one who would be followed if you're just doing all this manual labor. Never mind the fact that the reason that Paul did it was out of kindness for the people that he was with so that they wouldn't have to support him so that he might support himself. But they were twisting that to try to get their own way accomplished. Or they might have dismissed him and said that he should be dismissed because of this sort of meek and humble demeanor that he came to them with. They, they saw that as being weakness when really what that is is Christ-likeness. In fact, did you notice that as we read just right from the very start? Take a look at verse 1. It says, by the humility and gentleness of Christ... I appeal to you. Paul is saying, I'm coming at you seeking to demonstrate the character and the attributes of Christ as I do so in this way. And they're taking that and they're twisting it and they're trying to suggest that Paul is something less. They're trying to do the very things that they're accusing him of doing. The truth is that Paul isn't the one using the weapons of the flesh. They are. The weapons of the flesh. Just exactly what are those Weapons of the flesh are things like intimidation and manipulation and coercion and and threats. It's dealing with people in that fashion, and they've been doing that toward Paul. Sometimes it's a little bit more passive than that. Things like dismissal and avoidance and selfishness and gossip. All of those are weapons that were on display in Corinth. And if you think, you know what, it doesn't just sound like that's Corinth. Those things sound kind of familiar for today, too. You'd be absolutely right, because all of them continue to be on display today in the way that people engage and interact with one another, the, the accusations they make against someone else, or the, the way that they, they speak of somebody else. They're very much on display today. In fact, I'm pretty confident that you could take something off those lists I gave and say, well, I've been treated that way. People have spoken of me that way. Here's another piece. I think we could probably say that we've also been guilty of treating other people with some of those same responses in some of those same ways. Now, we don't like that about ourselves. We would love to dismiss that we're ever ones who are guilty of that, but we are. And the reason that it's crept into our lives also is because these are things, these are attributes, these are are behaviors that just kind of get dripped in over and over and over again to our lives into our culture every single day. You can see it all around you. It's the way that people oftentimes interact with one another at work or treat one another at work. You can certainly, most definitely see it on social media. You can see it on cable television, on network television. You can see it in families, the way that some families interact with one another. And it just keeps seeping in and seeping in to the point where it starts to exert this influence on us and we don't even realize that it's happening. And as it does so, and as we're influenced by it, what that is, is living by default. Living by default is the easiest way to live. It's just sort of I see this, I experience it, it kind of creeps in, and I just kind of respond. It's the first thing that comes to my mind. When I get angered, I just respond. I live by default. Probably the most natural thing for us to do. We just parrot it back, what we see and experience. And it oftentimes feels justified. Why? Because we do experience it. Because people do treat us that way. And why should that person be allowed to treat me that way and they not have to deal with it back coming in their direction? 
Or why can that group talk this way or deal with this way with me or with my group and my group shouldn't respond similarly to them? Because turnabout's fair play, right? Well, it is if you want to live by default. And because living by default is so powerful and because getting even is getting justice for so many people in the way that they look at it, we've set ourselves up for exactly what it is that we're reaping today. What we're reaping is unprecedented division and unparalleled animosity, open defiance and closed minds. It's all around us. You see it. You experience it. And it seems like the voices are getting louder and angrier and more divisive. And the crazy thing is, is that we know, we seem to know that something is broken, but the new solutions that are being offered in so many ways are a lot like the old solutions with which we've come to discover aren't solutions at all. But somehow we think if we just are going to go down this path again, maybe it'll be different this time. Maybe if we talk with more force or, or with more anger or more intensity, this time it'll be different. But it won't be different. Because the truth is that living by default has no power to heal. It's got no power to renew. It's got no power to restore or reconcile. And that's why the chasms between groups are getting bigger, not smaller today, even though there's so much attention being given to trying to bring those groups together. It's why that there are diverging opinions and ideologies and why those people choose to talk at one another instead of with one another. Because we're allowing these things to, that have crept in to be the way that we lead, the way that we move forward. And what is additionally alarming is that there are cracks starting to emerge even in the church as some of these same things that have been dripping extra fast in recent days start to influence even within the church. It's individualism at its core. And it has the power to pull at any one of us. None of us are immune. And as a result, in the church, outside the church, we can end up at the same place where we're living by default. It's just the thing that comes natural, and we allow it to happen. Living by default is very natural, but it's also very deadly. What we're in desperate need of is a different way to take us in a different direction that actually can offer renewal and restoration and reconciliation. That's what we need. And Paul seems to think he's got an idea what that would be. Let's take a look at what he says. I'm talking to the people of Corinth. Picking it up in verse 3 again, he writes, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Paul is clearly pointing out that there's a different model that we can pursue that's going to and is able to provide very different results. Instead of living by default, we're encouraged to be thriving by design. That's the other side of it, thriving by design. The design Paul is inviting us to is absolutely transformational. But as we have already pointed out, it's, it's not something that we just stumble into. It's something that we have to be very intentional to go after. We have to resist that which naturally is pulling us 
and say, I'm not going that direction. I'm going this direction, and then applying what it is that He is leading us to and calling us to here. It's not easy, but it does have the power to change the narrative that is all around us and ultimately change the culture right along with it. You might say, well, that's an awfully big claim, Pastor Jeff. You're right. It absolutely is. But I'm not the first one to make it. Certainly not the only one to do so. Did you see what Paul said? He said, the weapons that we are talking about have the power, have the divine power to demolish strongholds. Have the divine power to demolish strongholds. Strongholds is the great description for what Paul is dealing with there in Corinth. And it's also the perfect description of what we have going going all around us in our own culture. They're strongholds. that are keeping people apart and are creating animosity back and forth with one another. And did you notice the sort of power that can make it all possible? What's the word here? Divine. It's the divine power. This is God's power that we're talking about. That's the only power that is able to truly overcome. Don't think for a moment that the tensions and the division and the strife that we see all around us is anything less than a spiritual issue. There's nothing Satan loves more than seeing division and bitterness and backbiting and fighting and animosity between people who've all been made in his image, in God's image. Nothing that Satan loves more than that. But Satan's power is not supreme. God's is. Maybe you didn't hear me. Satan's power is not supreme. God's is. Thank you. God's is. That means we can overcome if we will take and apply the weapons of God's power that are in the arsenal of every believer. So, what are those weapons? There are so many. Let me just give you a few as it it applies to what we're talking about here. One of those is the truth of God's Word. You know what the truth of God's Word says? It says that we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of evil. Not against flesh and blood. Not against people, in other words. Yet how easy is it to see the enemy as the person who has an opinion that's different than the one that we hold or who acts in a way that is different from what it is that we believe. When people oppose or offend us, our response should not just be to lash out at them and cut them down. That's living by default. That's what's easy. That's what sometimes feels so good because I'm getting back. I'm standing my ground. We have to ask ourselves just what ground is it that we're really defending? Is it our own? Is there something that we think we're defending on God's part by responding with vitriol and hatred and and anger and living by default? Thriving by design would mean applying the weapon of God's truth. It tells us that Jesus' response when He was in that same sort of situation wasn't to get even. What did He do? He prayed. Remember what He prayed? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. People who are every bit as angry, every bit as evil toward Jesus, and more so than what we experience. He prays, Father, forgive them. They just don't know what they're doing. They've just been blinded. And the more that we speak 
into a blinded circumstance with that sort of anger, the more it just blinds that much more. Some other weapons of divine power are things like love, to see the other person, not just see their view. Or there's faith that God is going to step into and act in circumstances where we're choosing to live out of the obedience He calls us to. Or there's service or prayer as, well, Jesus taught, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. To love your enemy means to serve them. It means to look to their best interests. To pray for them does not mean to pray that God would smite them, even though you might feel that way at times. It means to pray that God would move in them, that He would bless them, that He would lead them to be sure. And if this sounds transformational to you, it is. It's thriving by design. It's a different way to engage and to respond. It's patience over anger and forgiveness over retaliation. And how does it start? Verse 5, when we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. When we take captive every thought, which leads to every action, to make it obedient to Christ in the way that Jesus acts, and responds in the way He models for us. That's thriving by design. I have every confidence that we can see progress in the troubles that exist all around us, but it's going to require that we transform our approach towards people that we don't see eye to eye with, with whom we disagree. Keep in mind that even though they might look like the enemy, they're not. And until we recognize that, we're going to continue to foster battles and wars and skirmishes. Even if some inroads are made in one area or another because of some emphasis that is made in our culture today, it's not going to last because that's not where the ultimate answer is found. We might find a little progress forward, but we're going to slip right back. And we've seen that cycle over and over and over again. I don't say that to be pessimistic. I say that to point out that there's a better way forward. Something that offers something new and different. Paul says, and we will be ready to punish every act of obedience once your obedience is complete. Verse 6. He's acknowledging that most in Corinth were already responding favorably to this divine message, but he's going to call out those who weren't because he knew they were, har- they were harming the purposes of Christ. They were leading people astray, and Paul's like, that's not going to continue. We need to turn a corner. It's also possible that we could find ourselves in a place where we think we're promoting the right cause when it's not God's cause at all. But when we apply this divine power, that He's spoken of to us here. We're going to see things change. That's where the hope is. So, it leads us to this question. The question for you. What are you going to do with this text? How are you going to respond to what Paul is laying out here? A life by default, It's easy, it's natural, or thriving by design. 
intentionally choosing to go a direction that is different from that which feels natural, which is different from that which we're seeing all around us, even different from what we're seeing from inside the church in many places around us. How are we going to respond? I know that you have people that you feel at odds with. Maybe it's because of their lifestyle. Maybe it's because of their political party. Maybe it's because of their religious affiliation or their lack of one. Maybe it's because of what they say or what they think or what they post or any of a number of things. I get that. Look, I understand. It's only natural. That sort of stuff works up in me too. It's natural for that to happen. We get there by default, but we're called to thrive by design. That means that we take a different path and we do so with intentionality. It means that we love and that we serve and that we pray and that we engage and that we don't just retaliate. We don't just try to get even, but we turn the corner. You know, here's what I believe I know about you. You want that. That you're ready for more. So I would just ask you, where is the step that you can take? Where's the one thing that you can do, the one person that you can engage who would be on the other side of this fence that we've been talking about? Who could that be that you would engage quickly, soon, to move forward in this regard? to live and act differently. Are you willing to do it? To step out, to step forward, and to approach them as a friend, not as a foe? They've had plenty of people approach them as a foe. Probably people that they consider to be in the same camp that you're in. Those church people. Those moralistic people lumping us all together kind of in this same realm. Well, you can be the one that breaks the mold. Approaching them as friend, not as foe. Not talking at them or about them, but with them. Because until we take those steps, there's absolutely no hope for these chasms to be closed. Not really. Might we be able to inch them a little closer together? Maybe. But it's never going to achieve what can be achieved through Christ. And until we take that seriously, we're never going to see any real progress. And the win is, as we do so, the name of Christ is honored and glorified. And people just may come into relationship with Him right along the way. I believe that you're ready for more. I certainly know that I am. And I pray that together we would be convinced enough and convicted enough and courageous enough to walk that direction. What does that require of you? And are you willing to take that step? Our Heavenly Father, There is so much that is going on all around us that sometimes disgusts us, 
sometimes discourages us, sometimes just makes us ask the question, when's it going to stop? Do we just have to wait until Jesus comes again and do we just have to endure it getting worse and worse and worse? Or do we have some responsibility to step up and do what we can in the moment? Lord, we know we must do what we can do. And we're not going to find that path living by default. Just getting swallowed up with the drip into lives, the drip into culture of this fleshly sort of response. Lord, help us to sit up, stand up, and recognize we're the people of God who've been given a different course, who've been given a model that we might thrive by design. It's not easy. There are times it's the last thing we're going to feel like doing. But I pray that you would help us to take on the model and the example of Christ who was willing to do whatever was necessary to accomplish the Father's will. Lord, we're all ready for more. More of you, more hope, more unity, more coming together. So Lord, you've given the church of all people the answer and the power. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't shirk the responsibility. We can and should be on the front lines of closing gaps and chasms. So use us, I pray, toward that end for the benefit of the relationships all around us and for the glory of Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, thanks for coming. Thanks for listening in today. We're glad that we have the opportunity to consider how God might use us. You think the the Scriptures aren't up to date? aren't living and active for the world where we live. It speaks directly to where we are and gives us a course to walk. And I pray that together we would be willing to do so. Thanks for coming. Thanks for listening in. May the Lord bless all of you as you go.